Morning, church. Good to see everybody here. Great to hear you singing. If you're a visitor, a guest with us, my name's Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. It's a pleasure to do so, and I'm eager to open God's Word with you this morning. Do you know the difference that one degree can make in navigation? I'll give you a little example. If you were to fly from San Francisco to Washington, D.C., a distance of a little over 2,800 miles, and if at the time of departure from San Francisco, the pilot's flight plan was off by one degree, you'd end up on the other side of Baltimore, just north of Baltimore, some 44 miles from D.C. You'd missed your desired destination entirely. Here's a picture of how far off you'd be. That's why pilots are taught the 1 in 60 rule, which states that after 60 miles of travel, if you're off by just one degree, one degree, then you're off by a mile in your navigational flight plan. And if over 2,800 miles you're off by one degree, then you're off by a total of some 46 miles. This week is our second week in a series titled Greater Than, which is a survey of the New Testament book of Hebrews. It's so named Greater Than because the author is going to tease out the many ways in which Jesus is greater than God's many other works in redemptive history. Last week, we learned that the ministry of Jesus is greater than the Old Testament prophets, as well as greater than the, the ministry of angels throughout redemptive history, which is not to denigrate God's work through the prophets or the angels, but to properly position and celebrate God's work through Christ our Savior. All of God's many works throughout redemptive history culminate in Jesus. There's a redemptive crescendo in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, which is one reason it's appropriate to worship him and not to worship the other prophets and not to worship the angels. This week, the author offers the author of Hebrews, whom we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but this author offers us a navigational warning based upon the reality of Christ's supremacy. We're in Hebrews 2, turn with me there in your copy of the scripture, with a similar concern, albeit for our spiritual navigation over a lifetime, right? There's a trajectory in our lives. We have a, a destination towards which we are headed. Hopefully it's maturity in Christ. Well, with this in mind, the author of Hebrews offers us a warning to not drift off course, but to pay careful attention to what we have heard which is one really good reason to be in worship week in and week out. It helps refix, realign our navigation in life. Just as pilots know how dire drifting off course can be, even if only by one degree, the writer of Hebrews warns us of the eternal consequences, the eternal consequences of losing sight of who Jesus is and all that he's accomplished for us. Here's the warning, Hebrews 2.1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. And if you're an underliner, there's all types of opportunities to circle and mark up this one little verse. It's pretty straightforward. You may be wondering, well, what have they heard? What's he referencing? To what are we to pay the most careful attention? 
Throw that back up there if you would, Jerry, just for a minute. The chapters in our modern Bibles were not present in the original manuscripts. So we're in chapter 2, verse 1. But these chapter divisions and the headings even of the chapters were inserted by translators in an effort to help us quickly find and reference passages. I mention this because the therefore in chapter 2, verse 1, would have been more clearly understood as a reference to all that was written in chapter 1 in the original manuscript because there wouldn't have been a chapter break. It would have been really clear what the therefore is there for. Last Sunday, we learned in Hebrews 1 that the Son is God's greatest and final prophet. He's appointed heir of all things. This is what they had heard. This is why the therefore was there. Christ was appointed heir of all things. Christ, the maker of the universe. Christ is the radiance of God's glory. Christ is the exact representation of God. Christ is the sustainer of all things by his powerful word. Christ is the provider of purifications for our sins. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Christ is superior to the angels. This is what they had heard. This is what they're to pay the most careful attention to. If you weren't here last week, the above assertions made in chapter 1, made in just the first few verses of chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4, it's a packed set of verses, I would encourage you to commit, if you're looking for something to memorize, this would be a great section of scripture to memorize. The author worked hard to help us understand the superiority of Jesus. I've matched each of these references in the opening of Hebrews with verses in the Gospels in which Jesus is recorded as making the same claims about himself. So I've cross-referenced them. And if you uh, use the going deeper questions that are in the bulletin each week, you can go to our website, under the resources tab, uh, this little uh, table is present under the resource tab. After all, it's one thing for the author of Hebrews to make claims about the character and the purposes and of who Jesus is. It's a whole other matter for Jesus to make those claims. I mean, we should ask ourselves, where did the author of Hebrews get this understanding? We got it from Christ. Are we paying the most careful attention to what we've heard about who Jesus is, or are we drifting? Of course, the dreaded reality is that we would miss our destination, that the gospel's message would be so compromised that it would impact our salvation or the salvation of others, that we'd not bear the fruit in life, that others wouldn't hear about the good news of who Jesus is. Unless you're floating in an inner tube on a lazy river, drifting rarely has a positive connotation, right? It's almost always um, means someone or something is at risk for being lost. They're drifting away. People drift apart relationally when they fail to communicate with one another. Companies drift, inevitably losing market share when their employees lose focus or the owners lose passion. Christians drift away from faith in Christ when they fail to pay the most careful attention to what they've heard about him. There's a fascinating movie of survival that I'd highly recommend. It's rated PG-13. It's called Contiki and was released in 2012. It's the true story of a six-man crew who drifted from Peru 
to Polynesia, a distance of 4,300 miles. The year was 1947 in which they drifted. The journey took 101 days. So we just got through with summer, some 90 days. Imagine, right, drifting for all 90 days in the open oceans of the South Pacific. In a homemade raft constructed with only balsa wood and hemp and bamboo and banana leaves, the men were carried along by nothing more than wind and waves for over three months. No modern building materials were used in the raft's construction. No bolts, no nails, no screws, no rope. I won't give away the reason for the voyage, just you should watch the movie. It's fascinating though, the reason for the voyage. I will say that the most radical element of the vessel's construction was that it had no rudder. There was no way to steer the vessel. The goal was to simply drift. And I raise this movie because drift happens spiritually for at least two reasons, both of which play out in the movie. Not unlike the Contiki, we drift spiritually because of external pressures upon our faith. The wind and the waves that press upon us from popular culture, sometimes subtly, perhaps even imperceivably, but nonetheless moving us off course away from faith in who Christ is. The Greek word translated as drift in this passage means literally to flow by. As if one's unable to make land. At one point in the Contiki's voyage, in fact, it was at or around the 90-day mark they had been drifting, Without a rudder, the crew flows by a, an island, having no ability to actually get over to the island. They just watch it pass them. The mind, perhaps preoccupied with other things, slowly loses direction, slips away from the ability to steer one's life. The danger that the author is highlighting seems to be an unnoticed loss of faith over time. Through simple inattention, perhaps apathy, a combination of the two, which brings us to the second reason for spiritual drift. Yes, it's true that we drift because of external pressures upon our lives, the wind and waves of popular culture, without a doubt. But the second we, reason we drift is an internal failure to act to actively steer ourselves towards our Savior. In short, we drift because we live our lives without a rudder. The Contiki was designed this way for a particular reason, but the writer of Hebrews says it ought not to be the case for those who are trusting in Jesus. And he gives us the internal action plan, a means by which we can successfully steer ourselves in life. And he spells out in no uncertain terms all that hangs in the balance. Let me read a few more verses here. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through the angels, right, two chapters, lots of references to angels. His, his, uh, his reference here is 
to the angels giving of the law, Deuteronomy 33, there's a reference in the Septuagint about how the angels were a part of delivering the law to Moses. And so he says, for since the message spoken through the angels was binding, the law was binding, Israel had to keep it, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment from God, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Christ, right, is the culmination of the law. How much more should we give our time and attention in our lives to focusing, not ignoring who Christ is? This salvation in Christ, which was first announced by the Lord himself, I would circle announced, was confirmed, I'd circle confirmed, to us by those who heard him. The disciples, those in his closest circle, they confirmed what they saw in Christ and heard from Christ and witnessed God also testified, circled, testified. So now we've got announced, confirmed, and testified. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now we have a Trinitarian moment. The gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. I'll take this opportunity to draw your attention to a vine and branches in our new art gallery, right? Gifts of the Holy Spirit, just as you make your way to Donutville after the service. Stop by the gifts display. If you're keen to notice subtle elements within the text of Scripture, make sure to notice the Trinitarian reference here. The author writes the gospel message was announced by the Lord Jesus, confirmed to those who had heard directly from Jesus, then testified to by God the Father and God the Spirit. We've got the Son, the Father, and the Spirit involved in the message of the gospel. His conclusion is we should not ignore. Don't ignore so great a salvation by mindlessly drifting in open oceans of popular culture. Make no mistake about what hangs in the balance. The rhetorical question asked by the author is how shall we escape? Verse 3. How shall we escape? clearly a reference to judgment if we drift away from what we've been taught about Jesus we must actively intentionally deliberately purposefully pay the most careful attention to what we've heard about Jesus his person his purposes his ministry in the world if we don't we potentially flow right by, undermine the gospel's power in our lives. Later in the same book, we read the refrain, it's well known if you're a churchgoer, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on trouble, no. Difficulties, no, on Jesus. Popular culture, no. Political issues, no, on Jesus who is the author, the beginning, and the perfecter, the end of our faith. One of the ancient symbols for the church is a ship at sea. It's actually the logo of a great church just down the road over in Wheaton, College Church in Wheaton has as their logo a ship. It's thought that this symbol for the church 
originated from the gospel accounts in which Jesus sends his disciples off across the Sea of Galilee in a boat, which is then overcome by a storm, fairly well-known passage of scripture. They're in the boat fighting the wind and the waves. They're afraid it's, they're going to get swamped and in the mist and the storm comes Jesus walking at them and they think he's a ghost, an apparition, and he gets in the boat and when he gets in the boat, the storm is calmed. <laughs> That's the good news right there. Worked out in, in real life events. When Jesus gets in your boat, he's in control. He brings an inner peace despite the outward turmoil. Folks, the external fo forces of cultural wind and waves, as well as the storms of life, they're not going away. They're not going away. These forces are as old as time. They'll continue to press against us, forcing us off course if we are not careful. In fact, although little is known about the context in which this letter was written, what is known is that the original author, uh, audience, the Hebrews, to whom it was addressed, were under immense pressure and tempted to give up their faith as a result of that, all that they were facing. A primary purpose in the author writing this letter is to encourage them, the Hebrews, those who are following the Jewish Messiah, encourage them to endure, to persevere. And of course, the message is timely for us today. Now, some may object to the message, saying that it sounds as if we're saving ourselves. In fact, some might say that it sounds like we earn our salvation by paying the most careful attention to what we've heard. But that is not at all what is in view. That is not at all what is in view. Remember that it was this same author who will later describe Jesus. We just saw the verse whom we are to fix our eyes on. Describe him as the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's at work, work in our lives to will and to work for his good purposes. We don't save ourselves is the point. God is saving us through faith in Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the one who draws us to faith, and it's Jesus who grows our faith in him, bringing us to maturity. But this experience of God's grace at work in our lives does not mean that we are passive or inactive in the process of salvation. Dallas Willard, a philosophy professor who taught at the University of Southern California, Los Angeles, a philosophy professor who taught at the University of Southern California, Los Angeles for 48 years, a believer who wrote on his area of expertise was epistemology, how do we know things, and he was a strong believer, an apologist, his focus, his popular writings were on spiritual formation, how do we grow in faith? He writes famously that grace is not opposed to human effort. Grace is not opposed to human effort. It is opposed to earning. And then he teases out the difference. He says earning is an attitude, and it's an attitude, I'm doing this and you owe me X. Right? It's a meritocracy, earning is. 
I'm going to do this, and I have these expectations. Effort is an action, and it's compelled by the experience of a Savior. Grace, you know, does not have only to do with the forgiveness of sins alone, he says famously. I'd highly recommend the book titled The Great Omission, a play on words. The Great Commission is to go make disciples. Um, His writing in this book, and it's a difficult book. It's the deep end of the spiritual formation pool, not an easy read. But his assertion is that the 21st century church is not making disciples. We're missing out. And his call is to the activities of the church, not to the earning, but to the effort. Where might have Willard gotten the notion that grace is not opposed to effort? Well, he he would have gotten that in part from passages like Hebrews. Chapter 2, verse 1, pay the most careful attention. He would have gotten that idea from Ephesians 2, 8, and 10, which says... We're saved by grace, through faith, in another man's actions. It's actually our faith in who Christ is, in his hard work, that saves us. And then in verse 10, we're saved for works of service. We're saved by grace, through faith, for works of service. In other words, for activities. That's why in the art gallery, there's a giant tree with vines saying, what are your gifts and how are you employing them? Get busy. Get active. The truth is, God's grace sets us free for service. It fuels, it empowers our service. That's what Willard means when he says grace does not have only to do with forgiveness of sins alone. That's just the start of the grace of God in your life, the forgiveness of sins, the freedom from shame and guilt. The completion or the trajectory of grace in your life is service, selflessness. So this word of warning does not mean that we must save ourselves. This word of warning means that those who are being saved by the power of God are empowered by God's grace to serve him, pursue him, live for him, After all, a life of discipleship following Jesus is a life of discipline. Discipleship has in it the root notion of discipline. It's an active posture of following the master. So it's completely consistent with the gospel to call those being saved by God's grace through faith in another man's righteousness to live a life of effort, determination. It's what one New Testament scholar calls grace-driven effort. The quote I'm about to put on the screen is in the bulletin you received today. It's a long quote. I'm going to take some time with it. Grace-driven effort. Not moralism. Moralism is is the desire to, to perfect ourselves. Not humanism. I'm going to find my own strength. But the grace of God fueling an effort. People do not drift. This was, uh, Don Carson is a, a well-respected New Testament scholar. With, um, at, he retired from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up in Deerfield. Um, he was a part of a, a grad program, that, the teacher in a grad program that I was a part of. People do not drift toward holiness. 
Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness. Our natural pull, trajectory, is not towards godliness. It's not towards prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. No. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. Well, I'm just being tolerant. We drift towards uh, disobedience, and we call it freedom. This is my freedom in the Lord. I'm saved by grace, so I can live like hell. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we are escaped, we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we are liberated. I've included this quote in the going deeper section of your bulletin. It's question number five. Apart from an intentional effort to pay the most careful attention to what we've heard about who Jesus is, we're going to drift towards compromise and call it tolerance, disobedience, and we'll call it freedom, superstition, and call it faith, indiscipline, and call it relaxation, prayerlessness, and call it grace, godliness, godlessness, and claim that we're liberated. Our flesh is not naturally inclined to discipline. In fact, one of the ways you can tell if the grace of God is at work in your life is if you're deciding to make an effort in following Jesus. Not out of fear, not out of shame, not out of guilt, but for the joy set before you, Philippians 2. A deep inward conviction that the best way to live is following after Jesus. And you fix your eyes on him. You might say, well, gosh, Kelly, I don't know if I'm drifting. What should I do? And admittedly, getting off course is easy to do, especially by one or two degrees. We need to be honest with ourselves that drifting is a reality with which we will all have to wrestle, and the remedy is the same for each of us. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Go back and rehearse what we learned in Hebrews chapter 1 about who Jesus is. And ask yourself, what impact does his person and his purposes, how is it making itself out, working itself out in my life? If he's the great and the final prophet, sent from God to minister to me, how am I paying attention to him? Am I getting his words into my life? If he's appointed heir of all things, if he is owner and the possessor of all things, including me and my family, my time, my talents, how's that working itself out? If he's the maker of the universe, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God, 
Am I submitted to him? If he's sustaining all things, do I think I'm sustaining myself? What about my life demonstrates that I believe he's sustaining me and I'm not sustaining myself? Prayer comes to mind for me. Prayerlessness happens when we think we're sustaining ourselves. He's the provider of purification for sins. He's the author and perfecter of my faith. What he started, he promises to finish in my life. So I need to focus on him and depend on him. How am I depending on him daily? He's seated at the right hand of God. He's the one who'll judge me, the living and the dead. His return is certain. How does that evidence itself in my life? It's his person, his purposes, to whom we're to pay the most careful attention. Would you bow your head with me? Father, I want to pray that you would deliver us from one degree off course or 359 degrees off course or everything in between. From compromise and disobedience and superstition and in discipline from prayerlessness and godlessness. By your spirit and the grace that you're working in our lives, help us fix our eyes on you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer, we all need it. If you want prayer, Dave Wigman and Pat Roach are down front. They'd love to pray with you. Let's stand together and respond to God's goodness in song.